iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Apple Store. Soho, how are we doing tonight? That cheer in the front was awesome. Welcome. Who's been to one of these before? Quick show of hands. Who's been to an event here at the store before? Great. Who's been to two of them before? Wow, awesome. Are you guys ready for a great time? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome tonight's guests, Joel Cohen and Ethan Cohen, and this evening's guest moderator, Peter Travers of Rolling Stone. Okay, silly question first. It's important, though. Looking at all these actors, you know, horseback, western, you guys, Minnesota, living in New York, did you two get on the horse yourself? Did you show the actors how to do it? Uh, I don't think either of us were on a horse at any point in this show. Uh, our first AD actually got on the horse a couple of times, but she's a very good rider. Um, the Wranglers are pretty fussy about who gets on their animals. And, and they didn't they could like tell the looks we of weren't, you. Uh, we weren't up to it. We didn't qualify. But uh, Jeff and Matt and actually Josh Brolin, are, uh, they're actually all very good riders, so that helped. I mean, we would have been kind of screwed if that had not been the case. So you're looking at them and deciding that they're good riders, or did they? Did you just no, take can, their word for it? It kind of no, worked out there. Yeah, I, Josh is an especially accomplished rider, but he didn't end up doing any riding in the movie. That's, uh, um, but Jeff and Matt also have quite a lot of experience doing it. And you know, Haley had a little bit. Uh, you know, she had ridden a tiny bit before she made the movie, but she was essentially an amateur. But she had to do a lot of writing in the movie. Well, let me ask what drew you to it in the first place. Why did you say it's going to be true grit? Didn't anybody come up to you first and say, hey, they made that already back in 1969? Uh, well, how did this all happen? Um, yeah, well, it came out of a, an enthusiasm for the book, which we had both read. Um, and of course, we knew that there was a, you know, a, a, a previous a movie had been made of it. We weren't really familiar with the movie. We saw it when we were kids, basically, when it came out, uh, and didn't remember it very well, and haven't revisited it since. Um, it actually just the, the the first version just wasn't much of a factor for us. We just liked the book and thought there was, you know, probably still room for a good, mo a, a, another movie to be made from it. <laughs> well, no temptation to look at the movie again at Well, all. yeah, there was some, actually. Uh, when we were shooting in, in a, couple, a couple of different scenes, we, it did cross our mind a few times, you know, much, I wonder how they did this <laughs> in the original movie. Um, but... Um, you know, at the end of the day, I think you were planning on renting it at one point, halfway through the show, and it just, you know, because we were curious. Um, at first, we sort of thought, why watch it? It's just, you know, we'll do our own thing. And then we got a little bit more curious about it, and then we just 
couldn't get it together to go and get a copy of it and look at it. We still haven't seen it since we saw it when we were kids. We saw the trailer recently, the trailer for the original movie, mm-hmm. um, which is, is actually a pretty f- amusing trailer. Um, but no, we just honestly weren't that interested in the original movie. It, it, as Ethan said, it was the book that sort of got us interested in the story and doing the project. What about reading Portis? made a connection with both of you? Um, well, there are a couple of things in this novel. This is actually the only period thing he wrote. His other four novels were all contemporary, I mean contemporary to when they were written. There's something funny about the novel is narrated by the, the girl, <laughs> 14-year-old girl. It's all told in her voice um, in the novel. It's a, it's a first-person thing. And uh, she's just very funny. There's something about both her attitude, which is really stiff-necked, and her and the language, which is a little flowery and a little stiff, a little formal, um, all very Protestant. There's something that's funny about that embodied in a 14-year-old girl. So there's there's that, and and just the dialogue in general is actually kind of stiff and a little uh, well, definitely archaic-sounding, a little flowery and funny in the context of you know kind of a uh, a bare-ass kind of Western context. Yeah, you've been ineffectually pursuing Cheney, you know, just, uh, and yet, can you talk a little about finding, she was 13 when she did this Haley Steinfeld, correct? How do you find exactly the right person to play this part? Well, you know, the language was, um, the language throughout the movie and throughout, it's taken from the novel, throughout the novel, as Ethan was saying, is, you know, um, is rather formal um, and um, and not at all contemporary. And that actually was the point, to a certain extent, that's where a lot of the, you know, hundreds or thousands of candidates for this job sort of washed out, which is that they didn't sound natural doing that kind of language. It's a little bit like auditioning for a verse play or something. It's, you know, you're, it's either... You can either make it sound natural and you have an instinct for that and a facility for that, and it has to be that at that age, obviously, because you don't have training at the age of 13 in those things, um, or you don't. So 99.9% of the girls that were seen, I think, for this role, probably one of the sort of, you know, one of the things that washed them out early was the fact that they didn't sound right doing this sort of language. They really couldn't do it. Haley didn't have any problem with it at all right from the get-go. And it was one of the things that we sort of immediately noticed about her when we first saw an audition, was essentially an audition tape of her. Um, Do you have them come in and read the same scene? Yeah, they they came in. It's it's actually, we did about one, one... thousandth of the work involved in finding uh, Haley. Most of it was done by um, um, a casting director named Rachel Tenner who saw literally, you know, thousands of girls throughout the South. We ended up casting Haley in Los Angeles, which is an irony that wasn't lost on any of us. But um, but uh, Rachel did see uh, lots and lots of girls for this. What about the idea of somebody like this who, she had a little experience, right? She had done some TV, and She'd that done was it. A, I think one, one pilot, yeah. Yeah, 
and yet you're throwing her into this movie with all of these professional actors. That, was she thrown by this at all, or was she just fearless? Uh, no, she wasn't. She, the first time we met her, we put her, the very first time we met her in person, we put her in a room with Jeff Bridges and uh, Barry Pepper and uh, an actor named Dakin Matthews and said, okay, do the scenes. And she was like, there it is. I mean, she, no, she wasn't at all intimidated. Um, you know, she doesn't, yeah, she's kind of completely unfazed. It's, it's the other thing which allowed her to ride in the movie. I mean, she didn't have a lot of experience on horseback either, but the Wrangler said to us, you know, you know, she's not got that much experience riding, but she has absolutely no fear of being on the horse, and so she looked completely natural. So what does Jeff Bridges do when you approach him about doing this? Uh, playing this part that if anybody reads or hasn't watched the movie, the 1969 movie knows, come on, sacrosanct in Hollywood, John Wayne won his only Oscar, guys for playing Rooster Cogburn, and you go to Jeff Bridges, the dude, and say, we want you to do this part. What does he say, first of all? You know, even for Jeff, I know it sounds odd, but it wasn't, I don't think it was a factor for him either. None of us much worried about that. We actually anticipated maybe, maybe that will be uh, something that makes him not want to do the part, but he just didn't really seem to care. We told him he should read the book, um, which he did, you know, to get a feeling for the part. And like us, he was taken with the book, and that was that. Matt Damon, I think, um, never even never saw the movie. Although I don't, you know, I don't know that he would have been much worried about being compared to Glenn Campbell if he had. <laughs> uh, but I, I, again, for whatever reasons, he wasn't worried about, you know, redoing that for you know, none of us really thought about doing it thought of it as doing a remake we were all kind of doing it with reference to the original novel this sounds great nobody's worrying right who worried on this set yeah yeah <laughs> well we worried about other things we may have been a little naive in that respect it's true i don't know we but it, there wasn't a lot of worried about worrying about the um comparisons or to the first movie or um you know at a certain point i think yeah, we we knew that the movie had a reputation and it was John Wayne and all that. And it's kind of a threshold decision about whether or not to sort of proceed despite that. And once you have, you kind of, it's sort of like you've jumped off the, the, the cliff or whatever and you just forget about it. You just go, okay, well that decision was made so let's not dwell on it. And, 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 uh, and I think that was probably the case with sort of everyone involved. It just got, never got revisited. And I don't think even in, in the back of, any of our minds in the back of any of our thinking. Um, there were so many other things to occupy our, the space in your head that you use for worrying, principally weather on this movie, because so much of it was shot outside, and we had such miserable weather during the show, um, that uh, uh, other considerations about the, you know, those types of considerations just didn't rise to the surface. Where did you shoot it? Uh, half in, uh, well, not uh, around Santa Fe, New Mexico, and about half outside of Austin, Texas. So what about the actors dealing with you? We've, everybody that reads anything about you guys, we hear two-headed director. 
If I ask you a question, you'll answer the same as Ethan does if I ask him over in that corner over there. Has that happened? You're not twins? Well, I think it's a bit of an exaggeration, actually. But we have been known to give opposite answers to actors. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's just... Uh, uh, you, you, it's like any other collaboration. You proceed from a, a uh, uh, sort of uh, point of view about the material, which is pretty much in sync. Otherwise, you couldn't have gotten as far as you know the first day of shooting. You've written the script. You've sort of hashed out all these issues. Um, and so because, again, like all kinds of other collaborations that you have on a movie set, because you're proceeding from a a fairly close, in sync sort of point of view about the material, there doesn't, there's not a light, wide divergence of sort of advice when it comes to, or editing or opinion when it comes to sort of what we're telling the actors. Um, also, you know, um, there's, there's a long process that, you know, uh, there's a process that you get to before you even arrive on the set with the actors as well. You've sat in a re room, you've rehearsed scenes, you've talked about it, you've, everybody's kind of on the same page at that point. I'm not saying that, you know, you choose any two people and you bring them through that process that that's going to happen, but, you know, after what, however long it's, it, it's been since we've been doing it, you know, 25 years or whatever, it's, uh, it's really not much of an issue. Yeah, it's like yeah, a nature yeah. to you. Yeah, we don't even, I'll tell you the truth, we don't talk to the actors much. <laughs> Most of the time you spend on the set with the actors, I mean, actually we do talk to them, but 98% of it is socializing. Yeah, it's true. It, you know, but, it, but, but the point sort of goes to everybody that you talk to on the set, I guess. I mean, whether it's Roger, the DP, or actors, or, you know, whatever little amount of talking you actually have to do. Um, there's not a lot of, right pretty much is there any level of intimidation you feel from the actors that they feel that you two come to the set knowing exactly what you want are they afraid at any time to say what if we did it this way I want to know if they live in fear of both of you. Well, I don't think any of the actors are afraid of suggesting things to us and I don't think we're afraid of telling them no and that's kind of the, you know, the bargain that you have with anybody that you're sort of working with. You want their input and then you want to have the freedom that, you know, you want to know that you can, you can say no without them being too uptight about it. You're still laughing. There's something well, I know you're remembering. I'm just thinking about Woody Harrelson had read uh, the book and had a heavily dog-eared, marked-up copy of the book. And we visited him the first day of work in his trailer where he showed us all the speeches that we had, his speeches that we had cut out as they were in the book and uh, lobbied for putting them all back in. And he was actually, we put a few back in, but he was pretty, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Woody would stay up every night and rewrite the script, bring it in in the morning, we'd say no, and he'd be fine. <laughs> Talk a little about uh, working with Josh Brown and what that experience is like and how you work out a character like that. Well, see, yeah, see, yeah. case in point, mm -hmm. Josh decides that the guy has an Andre the Giant voice, and we say, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, you know, we, actually it was, I think there was some debate early on about which part to cast Josh in. We were, wasn't there, there was, at one point we were, oh, yeah. 
Right, we were it, sort it of was, torn between uh, the part of Tom Chaney. This won't mean a lot to people who haven't seen the movie or the first movie or read the book, but Tom Chaney or the part that Barry Pepper ended up playing. Uh, Ned Pepper, the character's name is Ned Pepper. So you thought of him immediately, Barry Pepper, because it was lucky Ned Pepper. Everybody went, Pepper. That must be We've his part. We've got to have him, yeah. Yeah, I think we were sort of back and forth with Josh about, and then we thought, well, Josh would be fun. It'd be fun to, because Cheney is sort of a presence in the movie from the beginning, but you don't actually see him until that one moment um, in the river that, that uh, it would be, that that would be a sort of fun thing to do with Josh. We could, that casting made more sense to us. But no, once we decided, you know, that's what we wanted him to play and asked him to play it and he said yes and, you know, there was a little bit of rehearsal and a little bit of how we work, working stuff out in the rehearsal room, but mostly the actors, you know, come, they make their choices and do their thing and... And, um, and you are at times horrified <laughs> at those choices, and what happens? What do you do when you are? I would—I don't say horrified, but, but uh, no. Uh, usually, no. Usually, there's very little for us to do. I mean, and when there is, it's occasionally just sort of uh, you talk to them, and it's a, like an editing thing—a little more of this, a little less of that. You know. Do they try uh, the actors that you work with to discuss the other movies that you've made with you? Do they want to sit down and talk Fargo? Do you let them? Oh, it, uh, no, it doesn't come up. No. It's a frame of reference for thinking about a specific character in this specific movie. Mm -hmm. No, nah, I, I can't think of a single instance of that happening, referring back to another one of ours. Nobody does that. I can't remember any. No, honestly, I don't think so. I, you know, I guess it's possible that every now and then somebody references somebody something from another movie, not ours necessarily, but just talking about it, as it may relate to a character in a very general way, but no. What about you two? How often do you two discuss what you've done in the past? Uh, well, at a technical level, that happens a lot. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, Especially since we deal, you know, we collaborate so frequently with, you know, people in really key positions on the movie that we've worked with many times before. So there's this, there is this sort of frame of reference for a lot of the things you do from a technical point of view. And you have that history on your own movies and can discuss that. So I'm talking about, you know, with Roger or some, you know, or Peter Kurland, who does the sound mixing, or, or Carter Burwell, who does the score. Yeah, there's a, lot, there, there's a certain amount of discussion that way, yeah. But nothing thematic? No, more a kind of problem-solving kind of way. Like, we've done, we had a problem like this before, and we did yeah, more of that. Yeah. Because your last movie, when you were making A Serious Man, the the connection was, well, this must be about you. It was about you when you were growing up in Minnesota. The bar mitzvah had to be your bar mitzvah. How do you react to those questions about, is it you? Well, I, I think those questions were fair enough on the last movie because we were sort of framing it in something which was very kind of consciously a, con a, a familiar context to us. But, you know, there's a certain amount of um, so I think the question's fair, but there's a certain amount of, you know, overreaching that happens with it because whenever you're doing a, 
story, and it's a made-up story. It's not our story. You know, there, it's, it isn't you. It's a character that you've made up, and there are things that touch on your own experience, and in this case, maybe sort of di on, directly on our own experience, but it's still not you. It's, it's still a character. Yeah. There's, there's just this book that I saw and I didn't have a chance to look at, but it's a book about your films and it's evangelical and it's a, it suggests that in every movie you've done that everything comes back to faith. It's called The Dude Abides and this sense of spirituality is inherent in every film that you've done and spells it out in maybe the most bizarre way I've ever seen it. But the book exists. What do you do when you read what other people write about you? I think Ethan wrote that under a pseudonym. Yeah. <laughs> do you want to confess your evangelical side here today? No, it's all strange. It's all, I guess, an understandable exercise on the part of other people, but it would have to be, I mean, it's something that really doesn't interest us. You, you know, you do a story, you make up a story, and you find it compelling what gets you going is imagining different characters in uh, in a context that has nothing to do with yourself or what you've experienced personally. That's kind of the fun of it. That's the fun of doing it. Um, other people, naturally, since it's us having dreamed it up, people some people will want to relate it to us personally, but that's their exercise, not ours. And to the extent that, you know, really, to the extent that we were aware of anything being close to home, we really, we change it. I mean, it's all, anything that relates to us is in spite of our efforts, not because of, you know, our trying to do autobiography in any sense, or even work out concerns that we have or whatever. So what is this? Do you two look at yourselves as having a specific, a kind of sense of humor? Is there some specific things that make you both laugh? Well, you know, we both like this book, but so do a lot of other people. Uh, I don't know that there's anything peculiar to us. Um, I don't know. You know, we always feel, we never feel like, I don't know, we're, uh, we like cheap gags, but we also like, you know, there are things where you just kind of let the audience laugh where they want to, and it's not necessarily a comedy or gags or, you know, funny in quotes. Yeah, I think, that, well, you know, there's a, obviously we sort of, our, our sense of humor is close enough so that we're able to do what we do, you know, um, I, I, that's just kind of a given, I guess. I, I uh, um, but you just, it's a pretty unself-conscious process that way in terms of like, you know, how you approach the movies that you're making or the stories that you're telling or the script you're writing or whatever it happens to be, the humor finds its way in uh, sort of despite any sort of conscious effort to sort of inject it. But I, you know, I think it would be, and sometimes, you know, it's really just a question of, as it was, I think, with a, you know, Cormac McCarthy or Charles Portis that there's something that appeals to you about the sense of humor and the source material. Yeah. And what you're trying to do is, and obviously we share that, you know, we both, as Ethan just said, we both find that funny. And, and then you're just trying to sort of, you know, um, do that justice in the adaptation. 
Actually, the Cormac McCarthy book, uh, No Country for Old Men. Well, the book actually is pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, although the movie we made from it is probably our, we didn't get a lot. We didn't. We there aren't a lot of laughs in it. That's probably our uh, the movie of ours with the the fewest. Uh, mostly, I guess, because the humor in that Cormac McCarthy book comes, again, from a first-person narration, which mostly had to be uh, tossed out. There's not much of that, uh, the sheriff's voice in, in the movie. Well, you've added things. I mean, you didn't just say, I'm going to do Charles Portis's True Grit. There are scenes in this movie that aren't in the novel True Grit. So something about what you're doing, you're saying to yourselves, we need to add this for a reason. Uh, I don't think it's so much you need to add this for a reason. As, as you're going through it, you realize that, that in sort of adapting it, making it a drama or making it a movie, um, there might be a way of dealing with the way the story works that's a more dramatic way or more um, cinematic way um, and um, and so you, you take a bit of a left turn and that leads to having to invent or embroider to a certain extent on what on the source material and then you know and then it's just like any other script you know that you've made your story that you're making up all right it's time for the audience to ask questions now so raise your hand and there'll be a microphone somewhere First question's over here to the right. Hi, guys. <clears throat> um, you guys are such an in inspiration to young filmmakers. Um, I was wondering uh, what your uh, goals are as filmmakers. Like, what do you, uh, you want to get out of the movies that you make? Like, what, are your, what are your goals as filmmakers? Okay, you know, that's a really good question. I, I don't know what we're trying to do, really. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> seriously. At a certain point, I go... It's true. You go make all these movies for why exactly? Yeah. No. Um, at the end of the day, it's impossible for us to enjoy the movie, having worked on it for whatever year and a half, where you're so sick of it, and you do go, oh, "Wow." Well, the pay is good. Um, but yeah, we don't like watch our own movies. Uh, why do we do it? Actually, it was really. Remember when the one of the Wachowskis, and I get him confused, I can't remember which one, he, was, he came to the office and he asked us the same question. He said, yeah. why do we do this? He was puzzled because, you know, uh, you just cannot like your own movie, so what's the point? No, uh, it's a seriously good question, and one that we do ask ourselves, uh, and, and one for which we don't have an answer, really. It's all like, it's like life, it's a little bleak. Next question here to your left. Along the same lines as the last question, um, what legacy would you guys like to leave behind and how would you really like to be remembered as filmmakers? I don't know. I guess, I don't know. I guess we do it as it's a sort of a compulsion and one isn't thinking about, God knows, legacy. Uh, or we, even to tell you the truth to some extent, what other people will make of it, except to the extent that what you're doing is, you know, it's got to work, and, and, and work means work for other people. Uh, but beyond that, that really general trying to make it work, meaning work for, meaning work for other people, you're not thinking about... Uh, you're not thinking about terms anymore, any wider than that, really. 
You know, I have to say, there are, it can't, the process itself can be enormously rewarding somehow and fun. I mean, you did, that's part of what, why you keep doing it. It's, um, I mean, not always, but it can be, and it, it frequently is, and so that's, that's part of, you know, um, the, ple- you know, I guess that just, just, but that's, you know, just the pleasures of being involved in some kind of work that you enjoy as you're doing it. But I mean, I'm sure it's something you can, you, that those of you who are aspiring filmmakers can relate to. It's just the impulse of, you know, I got to get my movie made. I got to, I got to get this thing done. I have to get this story told. I have to make my movie. I, the, that's all it is. And then, all right, so you've made your movie. Yeah, it's there. It, it's, you want to get it out there. It seems enormously important to do that. The problem is that once you've done it, it doesn't seem so important anymore. But you say it's impossible to like your own movies, but the making of them could be. Is there one movie or two that you had the most fun making, not looking at it, but just the making of it? Oh, sure. Uh, Some are more fun than others. I think probably the first one was the most fun just because we didn't know what we were doing and it was all very stimulating. Well, it's simple. Yeah. just as a yeah, just a, as a production experience, yeah. Yeah, so there definitely are certain experiences that I mean, certain the experience of making some certain movies is much more enjoyable than others, and it has to do with well, you, you know, all, can have to do with all kinds of things. Who who's involved in the production? Who you know who the personalities mm-hmm. are? What kind of you know what happens just in terms of uh, where you have to be? What what happens? on the set, you know, just the whole process of it. Yeah. Next question Next. is uh, Standing Room Center. Hi, uh, your ability to make bleakness seem really, really full for really no reason, it seems, just out of nowhere, is amazing. Any chance you could make Blood Meridian? Oh, that would be a hard one. Uh, a Blood Meridian is a, another uh, Cormac McCarthy novel and by far is most obscure. It doesn't have a... I'll tell you, I actually read that book uh, through much of that book, not in a literal sense, knowing what the hell was going on. So that would be daunting to translate to film. I think, uh, didn't Tommy, Tommy Lee Jones? Uh, Yeah, various people have had the rights to the, uh, you know, adaptation. I think Tommy had it for a while. He may still have it. Um, It does seem like, it does seem like one of those untranslatable novels in a way. I mean, one of the things that, as I think a lot of Cormac stuff is, uh, I, you know, one of the things that struck us about No Country for Old Men, because we'd both read a lot of his stuff before we read that. We, and we read that in galleys, but we, we thought, this one really is, this could be a movie, unlike, I think, a lot of his other stuff. It really struck us that way. Um, it's, it's, there's something much pulpier about it. Um, and it's in, in, you know, and it's laid out in a, in a, um, um, it, it actually has a, a plot in a way that uh, many of his novels don't, especially Blood Meridian. We have time for two more questions. Uh, next question is here, all the way to your right. All the way to your right. Hello, uh, Joel and Ethan. It seems that um, all of your films have, are, 
embrace different genres, different cultures, um, different times, and I think all your fans probably have a, a certain film that they look to and they think of the two of you. But for, for the two, going along with what Peter Travers asked you, is there a film that you take a, a, a special amount of pride in that you've accomplished, a, a, a film that you are most proud of, and then that the two of you kind of remember as something that holds a special place in your, in your history of making films? Uh, yeah, no. Uh, the answer would be no. No, really, seriously, I, the, the, the more I think about it, and you're only forced to think about it in forums like this, no, you only make them out of some compulsion, and once the fever passes, it's, I'm glad that's over. And our final question is right here in the back row. Hi, um, I was wondering why did you decide to go with 240 widescreen and how do you decide upon where the camera goes and capturing what you capture? Well, that's interesting. I mean, the, I think I'm, the widescreen is generally something that, you know, it seems natural for a landscape movie, for a movie that you're shooting principally outdoors and is to a certain extent you want the location to you know, figure is a sort of um, major element or a character in the movie. We shot, you know, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, widescreen. I'm actually, I can't remember, was that Super 35 widescreen? Um, uh, oh Brother? Yeah. Yeah, it was Super, Super 35. 35. Um, <clears throat> um, and, you know, and then other ones where you go, well, no, it's just not appropriate. The format's not, doesn't seem appropriate for the subject matter. Um, since, you know, we did talk about since there's this craze for 3D, um, maybe it's just, uh, and since the lead character does just have one eye, we thought to be perverse, maybe we should shoot this in 1D, but Roger couldn't figure out what that would be exactly. So the experiment failed, but we're all happy the two of you came here tonight, oh, so thanks. thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again to Joel Cohen and Ethan Cohen. True Grit comes out December 22nd nationwide, December 22nd, True Grit. And don't forget this evening's podcast available for free in the iTunes store under the Meet the Filmmaker series. And of course, as always, apple.com forward slash Soho for all your upcoming Apple Store event needs. Don't forget tonight at 7, guys, Derek C. in France for Blue Valentine. 7 o'clock, that's in 30 short minutes. We hope to see you again. Feel free to stick around. And until then, take care and have the best week ever.